Peggy, I'm an alcoholic. And through the grace of God and fellowship of people like you and sponsorship, I've been sober since February the 4th, 1964, and for that I'm very grateful. Um, I want to uh, to thank you for asking me this weekend, and thank you for the, the great basket in my room. You know, I always, <clears throat> I really, you know, a lot of times you get fruit baskets and things, and they're really nice because, you know, you know you're eating healthy stuff. <laughs> but this is like chocolate and chips and, you know, there is one orange and one banana thrown in, you know, just, for good measure, in case I want to clear out the cholesterol later, you know, but it's just the kind of stuff I like, you know, so thank you for that. Mostly, thank you for having me back. You know, that we don't get asked back many places, especially drinking. Uh, they ask us to leave, but they don't ask us back, you know, and it's, so it's nice to be back. I hope, I hope that in the two years that I have been gone from here, that from this podium anyway, that I have grown some, and I hope I hope I will continue to grow some. Um, I thank George for his delightful talk uh, earlier. I can't I can't sing. Um, I, I I can't play the guitar. Um, I can play the piano, but it's a little heavy to get up here on the stage. <laughs> But what I love most about George, really, he has a beautiful voice, but what I love most was the look in his eyes. He had the, the merriest look in his eyes. And, and you know, um, AA put that there, and I know that, because that's, that's the way that God shines through George, is that look in his eyes. And, <clears throat> you know, we tried for years and years and years to have that look, or I did, drinking, and it just... It, it, you just can't succeed at that. But here we are, a bunch of strange people. These are the stra- we are the strangest people. <laughs> we, we laugh at things that are tragic, you know. It's tragic, and we we cry at things that 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 other people would laugh at. You know, we're all goofed up. And you know, I um, this is. <laughs> I am a big football fan, and uh, I'm a Nebraska Cornhusker fan. Um, I really approve of uh, Nancy's dress tonight, you know, because it's all red and mine's red. And this trip is, um, I got to thinking about it on the airplane today, this is kind of like a sacrifice to the football gods <laughs> to come, because this, tomorrow... Uh, Nebraska plays Kansas State. Now, for those of you who are not football people, that doesn't mean diddly squat. But for those of you who are football people, that is like, especially Big 12 football people, that is like the kahuna of all games this year. And uh, since this is Big 10 country, although there are 12 teams in the Big 10, which I can't figure out, I guess they can't have two Big 12, Big 12 or whatever, but... This is Big Ten Country. My friend and my mentor and my my longtime buddy Clancy gets to watch Wisconsin and Iowa, which is like a dog of a game. <laughs> Not because of Wisconsin, but because Iowa. I think they could put Ron Dane on the field and with no one except someone to hand the ball to him, and it would crush Iowa right away. <laughs> Uh, and so I have been given dispensation along with a future gift of $5 to Mr. Emerson to let me go to Willie's Sports Bar tomorrow afternoon so I can watch Nebraska play Kansas State. So you see, this really is kind of a sacrifice to the football gods. And for those of you who are not football people, this doesn't mean anything. You think this is a silly woman. This is the silliest woman I ever heard of, that she would get that ill over football, you know, to be going searching out and stuff. But, you know, I'm a person of passions. Other other people call them character defects. I call them passions. You know, when it says in the sixth and seventh step that we look, you know, we get those characters, the shortcomings, character defects, who cares? That some people, you know, when they talk, they, they act like they have just completely gotten rid of all of these things. And they're so 
the, wonderful that they float three feet, you know, above and <laughs> along. But that's not me. I have all my character defects in my pocket. <laughs> and occasionally, I just pull one out. <laughs> just for the fun of it. <laughs> Let's see how self-pitying we can be today. <laughs> oh, the queen of self-pity. Or let's say we're angry. Let's be really angry today. And that's, I think, the story of a living creature. It's, I'm never going to get well. I think that would be so boring to be well. What is well? Mature? Even-tempered? It's never going to happen in my case. <laughs> Which is why I need Alcoholics Anonymous more today than I did when I first got sober. Because when I first got sober, I was completely and absolutely without a single hope. I was desperate. I didn't have a single better idea. I was, I was willing. I was so, in retrospect, crushed by my, the imposition of my own character defects and by drinking booze a quart a day to the point I was just, I had no better ideas. My ego was crushed and I was totally clueless without one better idea that I was willing to do anything. I was willing to do anything. And I was very teachable and very, very dumb. <laughs> and the longer I've been sober, the more I think I can feel myself getting smart. I get smart. And then when I get smart, I have ideas. And when I have ideas, they form themselves into plans. And in those plans become grand and glorious schemes. And then the scheme involves lots of other people. And all those other people have to mind. And if they don't mind, Mama gets upset. And I get all my character defects back again. And that's the story of my life. That's why do I go to meetings all the time. Because when I walk in the door of a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, um, there's always somebody there to shake my hand. There, because, because, underneath all of this, underneath the football goddess, underneath <laughs> the artist, underneath the piano player, underneath the person who works every day even though she doesn't want to, uh, underneath all of that is still that little alcoholic person. Because that person is that I will always be that. I will always have the seeds of my own destruction inside of me. I've got this part of me in the back of my brain, which is like this little, it, this isn't exactly the way the scientists describe it, but this is the way I interpret these scientists describing it, which may not resemble truth at all, but it makes sense to me is that I have this part in the medulla, which is inside the medulla, which is the old brain that is the brain, it's a lizard brain, the lizard brain. And it contains every single piece of genetic information that I have that is an out, that, that me is an outgrowth, don't shake your head, lizard. <laughs> it's an outgrowth of me. And in that lizard brain is the knowledge of what one lousy drink will do. And that knowledge will be with me for the rest of my life. Even though the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and the actions that I take and the meetings that I go to and the sponsor that I adore and call on a weekly basis, if not more frequently, and the God that I pray to, even though they alleviate all of that 99% of the time, it's the 1% that'll kill you, isn't it? Because we have the knowledge down inside of what a one drink does. And that knowledge, that little 
heart kills more alcoholics than, than we even can imagine, I'm sure. Because if it didn't, this place would not be big, it wouldn't be big enough. It wouldn't be big enough to hold the alcoholics who stay. But we get plans. And we get ideas. And we have schemes. And we get ourselves into hot water. And then we remember. Because when we're scheming and plotting and moving and shaking and going on that energy that ego gives you, we ease our way right out of Alcoholics Anonymous. Whether it's actually, physically, by slowly leaving the meetings, or spiritually, by not being there when we're there. And, you know, have you ever noticed that the people who disappear from Alcoholics Anonymous, I'm not worried about the people who get a resentment and leave in a huff. Because they usually huff over somewhere else. You know, they go to another group and talk bad about your group. You know, they always do that. Or they huff away from a sponsor and go talk bad about their sponsor over with a new, more understanding sponsor. I never worry about those people. I don't worry about those people because they'll, if they're going to get it, they'll get it. It's the guys who leave so slowly we can't even remember that they're gone until they've been gone. Where's John? Oh, my goodness, I haven't seen him in a while. Well, if truth be told, John had a better idea. And I got, you know, this is, this alcoholism, this program of Alcoholics Anonymous is a living, breathing, spiritual manifestation. But I got to be present to win. Just like on the tickets, it says, must be present to win. I never knew of a member of Alcoholics Anonymous who was absent and won. Do you understand what I'm saying? we got to be here. This is where the message is. This is where I hear the message. This is where I'm able to sit in a meeting and maybe even give a message. Not by talking, because anybody can talk. Speakers are a dime a dozen. It's the people who sit in the chairs that are valuable. You know, because... They give us the strokes we need, you know, and they're, they, they, they're, they're the ones who do the work. They're the ones that, that make the coffee. They're the ones that, you know, set up the meeting. They're the, and I do those things too. Don't misunderstand me. I do those things. And I know Clancy does those. I've, I've been there when he's been the Secretary of the Pacific Group. And he was shaking hands with people and his arm, his hand was broken from playing softball or something. <laughs> I know these people who are here this weekend. I have been to Don's group. I know Don. I love Don. I love Don. He's a spiritual soulmate of mine. These are, you know, these are, these are wonderful people, but they earn their seats. We have to earn our seats. I've had to earn my seat. And I can't just not earn it. I got I, I can't quit earning it. I can't just say, well, that's it. I paid my dues. I'm sayonara. I'm blowing this taco stand. That's not the way it works. We have to keep it going. You know, repetition got me here and repetition keeps me here. Meeting makers make it. And so I don't want, you know, people say, well, why did, you know, why did I get drunk? Well, let's start with, you drank. <laughs> so why did I drink? Well, let's start with, when was the last meeting you went to? Well, or let's start with, when was the last time you called your sponsor? Or, how are you working the steps? How are you living in the spirit of this thing? Well, you know, I don't like those people. They hurt my feelings. They're silly. I have a resentment. You know, blah, 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 blah. That's what my sponsor sounds like when I don't want to hear what she's saying. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> you're lucky that I'm, well, maybe you're not so lucky, but I almost didn't have a voice this week. Isn't that interesting? I was at the Texas A&M game last weekend. And I screamed so loud that, and for so long that I didn't have a voice until Tuesday. I'm a person of passion. 
love Alcoholics Anonymous. It saved my life, and it continues to save my life on a daily basis. Um, and I don't want to ever forget that. I don't want to ever forget it, because if I forget it, then I'm going to take everything I have for granted, and everything I have is AA. I'm married to a wonderful guy who's my my roommate, my soulmate, my 33-year married person to me. Thank God. Um, I I have it. I have a son who is sober for uh, 12 years in Alcoholics Anonymous. I have a daughter-in-law who's sober for 14 years in Alcoholics Anonymous. I have two grandchildren. As a direct result, I have a great relationship with those people. I have parents that are living across the street from me who uh, several years ago made me the person who was the biggest disgrace in the family of, uh, of, of sort of straight-laced people. Um, <laughs> might I? I'm, I'm, not, I'm not judging. I'm reporting. <laughs> I like this fellow that talks. He says, I judge no man. But then that's not my story. <laughs> As a result of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, they made me executor of, of their estate. And that's unbelievable in, the, in, the, in my case. Unbelievable. And it's due directly to Alcoholics Anonymous. But more importantly than that, I am available for those elderly people. I am available for the two people who, who kept me alive when no one else cared if I lived or died. They kept me alive. Um, they are my heroes, my mom and my dad. And uh, I have this kind of relationship with them. My father, in two weeks, See, I'm a person of passion. <laughs> we'll be 90 years old. And uh, he's a skeet shooter, and he's... Uh... Oh, good. And he's the only living member of the Skeet Shooting Hall of Fame. Yeah. He was the first doctor that landed on Okinawa after the Second World War. Uh, he in, was infiltrated China before the war was over to help some of the people in the backlands of China. He's an amazing man. He's one of my greatest heroes. And my mom got sick. She just had the flu or something, and she threw up. And my father called me. I live right across the street. And he said, Peggy, you have to come over here and talk to your mother. <laughs> and I said, but Dad, you're, you don't want me over there. You, you always tell me, don't come over there when we're sick. I don't want you, and know, he's a doctor. Don't come over here when we're sick because you're afraid I'll take the germs and spread them around or something. <laughs> he said, no, I want you to come over here. So I went over, and what he wanted was he wanted me to clean up because he couldn't get down on his knees and clean up. And I was able, because of Alcoholics Anonymous, to put my arms around him and say, Daddy, just ask me for the help. Don't you know what you did for me? Just say, Daddy, I need your help. You don't have to, you don't have to make up excuses for me to come. I'll come any time. And you have given me that ability to hold my old bed and clean up after my mom. And I didn't ever have that. I had never had that kind of clean relationship. We can look the world in the eye. I drank a relatively short period of time, I suppose, for somebody. I really started drinking. I was 13 or 14 years old. And uh, I took to it like a duck to water. I just loved it. I just, it just, it, I tell you, it, I was always, always looked like a, a picket in a picket fence. I was never had any shape. I was always kind of skinny. And, uh, thank you. And, uh, I, 
I drank and, and I got boobs. I mean, that's all there was to it. I drank and I got boobs and, and I got guys. <laughs> Drink and I knew just exactly what to do with them. <laughs> and sober, I didn't have a clue. I like to fight them, I know that. I uh, was a ratty little girl, uh, a little belligerent, kind of sassy little bratty little thing. Um, 56 pounds in the sixth grade that uh, just lo I loved hitting things. I loved hitting people. I, you know, I, I, uh, I was angry and I was fearful and, and I, and I just, I, uh, I liked smacking guys. I just liked smacking boys. I, I didn't, I didn't want to smack girls because I, they'd smack back, you know. I don't <laughs> My little boys are not supposed to hit little girls, so I could punch them, and I was a bully. I was a bully. And uh, I took it out particularly on this one guy named that we had. A, he had a sober cat uh, because he wore these weird clothes. He wore high water jeans and a white shirt. He was a nerd. He was a real geek, a nerd, whatever you call him today. Uh, what do they call him today? Nerds. Nerds? Same thing. We must get more inventive. You know, we gotta get something else. Like, uh, cyber gurks or something. <laughs> that ain't bad. What's wrong with that? Um, but he was a nerd and, and we were raising, we, where's George? We were raising money to send candy to the kids in Berlin behind a wall. And uh, he didn't bring his money in, and I was in charge of the sixth grade <laughs> money collection. And this guy didn't bring in his money. And so I said, I'll tell you what. He had these tennis shoes that had lightning bolts on the side of them, you know, with these high-water jeans and stuff. And we called him Flash. <laughs> I said, I'll tell you what, Flash. You don't bring your money in tomorrow. You meet me after school. I'm going to beat you up. And he was like, he weighed like 600 pounds. He was a big guy with a big butt. And he had these little tiny, witsy looking pinhead and teeny little shoulders and a big fat butt, you know. I thought I could just punch him like one of those clowns and just knock him over and he could roll around like that. But you see, I'm a rebel and I'm a coward. It's a bad combination. And I, I hadn't had a drink. So I hid in the bushes, and when he passed by me, I jumped out of the bushes with this enormous, I hoped, blood-curdling cry, and landed on his back, almost slid off because of those narrow shoulders, and took my fist and just whammed it right up into his nose. I broke his nose, gave him a bloody nose, and he, I rode him to the ground, always ground, bleeding, crying, you know, and I, I was... It was, I got in a lot of trouble, a lot of trouble, because his dad was a sergeant and mine was an officer, and it was a, just an incident, you know, one of those things you don't want to put in the Post Journal, you know, kind of thing. And so I spent the next six weeks in my bedroom after school listening to planes land and take off, because that we lived on an Air Force base. Years later, when I put him on my amends steps. I got to thinking. <laughs> and I always say this, that um, if you're in the audience, Flash, <laughs> I was wrong <laughs> to smack you, but I'm not sorry. <laughs> I've never been sorry. And you know, it's not necessary all the time that I'd be sorry. It is that I take the actions as if I am sorry. <laughs> Years later, I was talking at AA someplace, and I was doing talked about this, and this guy came up to me afterwards. He was a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and he said, I was the pilot who flew the plane who took the first candy bars into Berlin. That not that something? I mean, it's a small world. So I, you know, I... 
sort of drank my way through high school, and I got into college. I went to Texas Christian University, where you're not supposed to drink at all. And I lived in the dorms, and I had a dorm mother named Miss Pringle, of all things. Honest to God, I swear. And uh, I learned then uh, to eat peanut butter. We would keep jars of peanut butter in the car, and we'd go out and we'd drink. And then when we'd go into the dorm, we'd take a big wad of peanut butter and stick it in our mouth. And then when we walked in the door, we would just, Excuse me, Miss Pringle. <laughs> it was a big, big thing of peanut butter. And, uh, oh, but, you know, even then, you know, even then, I, did, I didn't drink like the other people that I hung around with. They said things like, don't take off your clothes. <laughs> it's dark. This is a lake. You might drown. Oh, to hell with it. <laughs> don't go with him. Why? He's got a nice car. They didn't drink like I drank. They didn't, they were, I thought they got kind of dull, you know, sometime in the middle of the evening. And we usually parted company. They went home. And I just went. You know, we go. We went with whoever that seems to be having good times. And as a result of that, you know, I, I heard Father Terry say, that lots of people go to Europe and they sit at a sidewalk cafe under an umbrella, you know, in Paris, and they have a drink. Part of the huge picture. I was drinking and went to Paris. <laughs> Big difference. <laughs> I drank and stayed in Paris. And then I drank and stayed in Geneva. And I drank and I stayed in England. And all during that time, I'm drinking. And I'm learning languages. I'm learning languages drinking. I can't speak them sober. But I'm too afraid. It removes all your inhibitions. So I was a great linguist drinking. And people who are linguists are slightly schizophrenic. They really are. People who are really good at this are slightly schizophrenic. So I fit right in. And they, you know, we would carry little flasks with us when we were doing jobs and stuff, uh, doing that. And it, it was, it was a wonderful thing. And it is wonderful. I'm not knocking alcohol. I, it's, it kept me alive until I got to Alcoholics Anonymous. Because if it hadn't been for drinking, um, I probably would have killed myself. I'm, there's no doubt. My natural disposition is one of loneliness and despair. I mean, depression, uh, sadness, anger, all those marvelous emotions, the passions that we're talking about. Um, one of my one of my best is uh, my ability to exaggerate. It isn't that I'm exactly lying. I'm just exaggerating. And the worst part of it is that I exaggerate to myself. I exaggerate my own importance. I exaggerate what's going to happen to me. I make it the biggest damn deal you have ever seen in your life. And it's all going on in my head. It's not anywhere out there. It's just here. I just have this ability to blow up a very small rat into the size of an elephant. And it overwhelms me. I mean, it, it, it starts out small, and then it climbs up on my shoulder. And before the day's over, I'm burdened with this enormous elephant hanging on my back. And I think, I'm so tired. What is wrong? And it's nothing but a thought. It's nothing but a thought combined with exaggeration and character defects. So I go to a meeting. And some, I walk in the door and somebody says, you got an elephant <laughs> draped on your back. I know, I know. Why don't, why don't you take it off? Um, well, it's my elephant. <laughs> well, put it down. 
Here, let me pull on the trunk. <laughs> oh, Lord, and I've been going through that for about three weeks now. I've had, and now I've had elephants. Um, thank God for Alcoholics Anonymous. Thank God for our ability to walk in these doors and get perspective. Where the exaggeration comes down to, to the place where we can have a realistic view of stuff. This is realism. You know, this is where we find reality. But we can't stay in it, can we? And we walk out the door, and guess what? There's the elephant again. But at least by then, I have the perspective. Do you want to pick it up, Peg? Or do you want to go home and have a good night's sleep? Thank God this is a living program. And thank God that all of us are amateurs. I don't want to ever really graduate beyond being kind of having a kind of a refreshing newcomer approach to Alcoholics Anonymous because if it becomes jaded, if it becomes ordinary, if I become complacent about it, um, I'm signing my death warrant. Because I haven't had a drink in over 35 years. I pick up a drink, I'm dead. I'm history. I'm either nuts or I'm dead. Um, and both of them are ways of dying. Um, I drank, uh, really, I started having a lot of trouble with my drinking. when I was about 23, 24, 25. And uh, I had been in school in Europe for several years on my own. And my uh, folks came back to, the, to this country. We were stationed overseas, and my father came back and was stationed out in California. And I went to California and... Um, went to the University of California at Riverside. Um, it was in the days of, uh, of uh, the beatniks and then the hippies and the rebels without causes. And I was a rebel without a cause, and I fit right in. And uh, I wore sweatshirts and cutoffs and no shoes. And we washed our feet once in a while, and that was about it. And uh, my best friend was a fellow that looked like Father Sarducci on Saturday Night Live. <laughs> And uh, he wore a black cap, black, big black hat and black cape, and he smoked dope, and I drank vodka out of a thermos, and he recited his poetry to me under the eucalyptus tree in California, and I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. I was writing a thesis on Mar what Marcel Proust really meant in A La Recherche du Temps Perdu. <laughs> and I have, read, I have read that paper since, and I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> he was a laudanum alcoholic addict, whatever you want to call him, and a depressive to boot, and I just loved him. Um, I began to have a tad of trouble. Um, I was on the dean's list there. And uh, I was living at home, and I, I lived in this, the bedroom with my sister, and she was Donna Reed. <laughs> Blonde hair. Tiny little thing, don't you know? In those days, we wore horsehair petticoats. Remember those horsehair petticoats and big old poofy skirts and big old poofy hair? And, you know, she had all of the latest fashions, and she had all the, she had perfume, and she had makeup, and she looked good. She had lots of friends, and uh, she was very popular. She didn't have a brain in her head, but she's very popular. <laughs> or so I said. She's a very smart woman, really. And she was in the bedroom with me, and I slept in one bed. She slept in the other. There was a... These nice little cherry wood things with little chenille spreads on them. And she had like millions of stuffed animals on hers, and I didn't make mine ever, hardly. And uh, I was always on a diet because I was drinking about a case of beer a day, and that'll make you fat. And uh, I was very puffy. And uh, when you drink that much beer, you there's one thing you have to do, and that is you have to pee. There's no, you have to pee anyway. But when you drink that much, you have to. There is not, it's not like, oh, I need to pee. No, it's like, oh, sorry. 
getting taken drunk a lot, you know, where you just, you're going along just fine. And then you just like go, you're drunk, you know, you're just drunk. And uh, I would go to bed and I, or pass out or whatever you want to call it. One time I got up in the night and I went over and opened the closet door and squatted down and peed in my shoe. <laughs> but it was in my shoes, which was good, you know. <laughs> and uh, one day my sister, she rolled her hair up with those things that they have brushes in the middle, you know, and they put dabbers through them. <laughs> and it draws the skin of your face. <laughs> she said... She'd rise up and make proclamations about my behavior in one way or another. <laughs> and it looked, they're coming back. They're coming back in popularity. They look like Langenberger baskets. I can't even say that. Langenberger basket. What? Longer burger. <laughs> but they had, uh, it was like rope, made out of rope. And they usually had these flowers on top, which I ripped off and discarded. <laughs> because political activists don't carry things with flowers on them, for example. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I got up this morning and I kind of, you know, staggered out of bed. And my sister rose up out of all these amps. She goes, <laughs> I buzzed. I looked over at this purse, and it looked like it had a nervous breakdown or something. She said, I believe you peed in your purse. And I had. I opened up the lid, and it was, oh, my God. But I dried out the money and spent it anyway. I'm nothing if not thrifty. But I was beginning to have that kind of trouble. You know, that, that's trouble. I mean, what do you do? Go to the university where you're writing a paper on a, a thesis thing like on Marcel Proust, Oliver Cherche, Dutton, Perdue, and say, guess what I did last night? I peed in my purse. No, 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 no. You don't say that. They won't sit next to you. Because they're afraid you might leak right there next to them. And I got, you know, I was having trouble. I think we sometimes, we get so emotional about the facts of our lives. And the fact is, you know, I always wanted to have a little sort of grace about this. And sort of say, you know... What it is, is you're so smart that your brain is wired differently than other people because you're so smart. And it has all this electrical activity boinging around inside of it. And it's no wonder you're goofy. <laughs> Anybody who had that much electrical activity boinging around in their head would drink too. But the bottom line was, I wasn't crazy. I'm an alcoholic. Crazy people don't pee in their purses. Drunks pee in their purses. Drunks pee walking down the sidewalk. Moi. Drunks do that stuff. I didn't want to call myself a drunk. So I said, the reason you drink is because you're too sensitive for this world. Yes. Pathetic, isn't it? You're too sensitive. You're too highly wired for this world. Well, finally, towards the end of my drinking, I, uh, my sister had said to me, you know, you look road hard and put up wet. And you know, we need to do something with you. So let's do your hair. Let's fix your hair. You know, you look horrible. You look like your hair died. Well, it had. I, it looked like a bunch of shredded wheat, you know, just stuck all over my head. She said, let's frost it. So she, she thought if she would fix up the outside, the inside would feel better, and then I would not drink. And so she sat me down, and she did the stuff, and pulled my hair through this shower cap with holes in it and she said let's let's do this so she 
supposed to be streaked. I don't know. I can't see anybody who's got frosting, but they're supposed to look distingue, you know, something like this. And <laughs> what happened was that we were amateurs. You know, we knew what we were doing. And I was drinking white rum. And your hair is a shaft of protein. And I tell you, alcohol just goes zap right to your hair. You know, <laughs> you know how when you're drinking, you think you're supposed to drunk. Your hair is drunk. It is drunk. It's drunk. She put this stuff on my hair, and the places that she put it turned bright bozo orange. Orange. And it was, and it, it was real dried out. You know, it was all crackly. You know, you could kind of go like this. It would crackly pieces, and you'd get pieces of orange hair come off in your hand. And then all of it fell out from these little holes, and then it itched. And so I spent the first week or so, a month or so in alcohol, and I was going, because I looked just like a mangy dog. I mean, and I had this drinking uniform, blue turtleneck sweater, gray stretch pants, size 14 or 16 or something, because I was, I had just blown up, you know, like a big old balloon, and big old fat cheeks, fat behind, fat all fat, fat, and just with this big stretchy sweater, never took it off, never bathed. I had decorated the bathroom in a fit of decorating frenzy, and I painted the underside of this old tub with claw feet black, you know, and all the rugs were purple, and the towels were purple, and the windows were painted shut, you know, it was just, and I woke up, passed out underneath the tub one time, and I was looking at this big claw, and I thought, oh, I've gone to hell, I've gone to hell, this big bird has come to get me. And another time I woke up in the tub with water up the air, you know, and I just like quit bathing. I made, made that alcoholic decision. Don't bathe. And, by, and, and one day, you know, what I had always been, I'd always had a sense of humor. I'm so glad you mentioned that, George, because it's one of the reasons that I've stuck around. I was born with a sense of humor, and I had lost it. I had drowned it. And uh, I was looking in the mirror one day, and I thought my eyelashes were falling out. Now, I I have always, I, I would straighten up once in a while, you know, and I would, like, try to do something. And I would try to put on makeup, you know, and I'd lean in like this, and I'd put on eyeliner, and I'd take, and I'd put on mascara, you know, but I never took off the makeup I had on before. So I had these big eyes that looked, they were... You know how your eyes are when you got lots of mascara on it? You know, it's just like they're so slow. You know, they kind of slow. So high. And they kind of stick together at the bottom, you know. And and all that comes off around your eyes, and it's like these, like, raccoon eyes like this. And this mangy hair, and I'm looking, this great blue turn like sweater, and I'm looking in the mirror and thinking, my eyelashes are falling out. And then, literally, started crying, started sobbing, running mascara, terrible, you know, and stumbled out the door, fell down the stairs in this, I live in, they put me in the attic, <laughs> only because I had argued with one of the NATO chiefs. <laughs> Over bowling averages. <laughs> I hadn't bowled since I was in high school, but I told him I had a 200 bowling average. <laughs> So they put me in the attic, and they told me, don't come down. I fell down the stairs, and my mother came out of the bedroom, and she said, what's wrong? And I said, I can't drink. My eyelashes are falling. <laughs> I'm a drunk. I look like Jeff warmed over, and I'm worried about my eyelashes. But you know what had happened? You know what happened. What happened was I was out of ideas. I was out of ideas. I didn't have a single better idea. I was desperate. 
I thought I was dying. I, I literally, that was just symbolic, you know, but I thought I was dying. I, I, I really wished that I was. I wish it was, I wish it was, I had wished it was over. But it, but the terrible thing about alcoholism is this. It kills you so slowly. And it would, you know, it was, it was, it was so slow. And I had not a shred of integrity. I would have sold anything. I remember my daddy gave me a collection of silver dollars. And I used them to buy alcohol. I even had a silver dollar, which was a commemorative silver dollar. It was a very special one to him, and he gave it to me, and I had it on a keychain. And I, I bought a six-pack of beer with it. I gave away my soul. I sold it. I gave away my body. I sold it for the price of a cheap drink. And I had no integrity left. I had no hope left. I had come to the end. I had come to the jumping off place. I never believed in God. I uh, I thought that it was a nice story for people who needed help. And I lived by my wits. And I had come to be witless. <laughs> and I didn't exactly cry out, oh, God help me. But that's what I did. And my mother, who had been going to open meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous at the time, grabbed a hold of me. They threw me into the back of a Porsche. They took me to the country, and they put me in Melwin Farm outside of Washington, D.C., which had been opened by a doctor who knew my dad. And I dried out. And uh, they brought meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous to us, and they took us out to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. I never was really in a treatment center per se. They gave us a little information about alcoholism, and they took us to meetings. And the people of Alcoholics Anonymous welcomed me. I am on a greeting committee as often as I can be on one at my own group, because I believe that shaking someone's hand or giving them a hug when they arrive at the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous is one of the most important messages that we can ever deliver to someone who's brand new. I have been to meetings across the country of Alcoholics Anonymous, and if I had been new, I would have left because no one paid the slightest bit of attention to me. And I have, I've been sober a long time. I don't need the attention. But I always think about how a newcomer is going to feel when they walk into a meeting like that. And although I may not see that sort of thing in their meetings, I have a responsibility to be what I need to see. And if I can be what I need to see, which is I need to be at the door. I'm not going to tell you to do it, and I'm, but I am responsible for doing it. I can be at the door, and you can see what I'm doing, because I'm doing this for you and for me. I gotta be what I see. I gotta be what I really want to see. And I gotta say what I wanna hear. You know, sometimes it's not very popular to say stuff. Well, I risk being unpopular then sometimes. And sometimes it's not easy for me. Because basically, I'm still a coward. I'm still afraid. One of the things that I love about Clancy is that he has courage. He has genuine courage. I don't. I pray a lot, and I've been praying a lot the last few weeks. I, it, nothing is going, nothing particularly is going on, except my alcoholism. Do you know what I'm saying? It doesn't have to be external circumstances. It's how I react to external circumstances that, that matters to me. And I've been doing a lot of praying. I've been saying, God, I offer myself to thee. To build with me and do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self. Think of that prayer. Take away my difficulties. Not because I'm a good girl and I deserve it, but because it shows other people that I, that you're helping us. <sighs> my creator, I'm now willing to have all of me. The good and the bad. 
pray you move every single thing that stands in the way of my usefulness to you and to my fellows. Grant me strength as I go out from here to do your bidding. Amen. Powerful stuff. But in my case, temporary. So I have to keep saying them. I wish I could report to you at 35 years of sobriety that I had this reservoir of faith. I have seen people who do. My husband has a tremendous amount of faith. Don does. I have seen people who have this kind of faith on a daily basis. But I don't. It's like vitamin C to me. i got to take it daily. You know, because vitamin C can't be stored. You have to take it daily in order to do it. I'm that way with prayer. i got to do it daily. Because I don't know why. I don't care. I mean, you know, I my worst place is in my head. And when I get thinking, you know, I, I'm a binge thinker. You know, I <laughs> think and think. You ought to be this. You ought to be that. You know, blah, 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 blah. You know and I just, just my, my brain is so loud. You know, I'm just like, shut up. Call this to order, you know. And so, and prayer calms that. You know, saying those prayers shuts up that imperious voice. It, 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 George said it. It gives me a sense of well-being, a feeling of being cared for. So this is about character defects. This is about making amends. This is about restoring relationships. And I want to dwell on that a little bit tonight. You know, I have lots and lots of character. They always will have uh I say they're in my pocket. I don't happen to have a pocket in this dress, but they're down in my pants or something, you know. They're always available to me should I need to snatch one out. And as an aside, if Nebraska loses tomorrow, I could use a big hug. It makes me sad because I'm nuts. But they're always, those things are always available to me because I'm a human being and I'm an alcoholic human being. And uh, sometimes I just like pulling them out. But I'll tell you something. I want to talk a little bit about what benefits the men's have done for me because I believe this is just, you know, I, I can't speak for anybody else. But for me, in my observations of people in Alcoholics Anonymous, usually the people who leave very slowly leave because they have an amend that they haven't made or a secret they haven't shared. And that begins to eat at them, and it begins to make them feel different, and it begins to force them out the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous in some fashion. And, uh, I, you know, it's hard for us to be honest because we're afraid. We're afraid of rejection. I'm afraid, You know, I'm afraid of rejection. I'm afraid of of. of People not liking me. I'm afraid of this or that or whatever. But in the long run, the easier, softer way is honesty. And I think when we are, uh, you know, when we make that list of people that we had harmed and we really do become willing to make amends to them all, that I have to take action on that. And one of the one of the first actions that I had to take was that when I was in drinking, I uh, was at Washington University in St. Louis. Now. I don't know if any of you know anything about Washington University, but it literally is the Harvard of the Midwest. It is very well endowed with funds. There are very, very bright people there. You really have to have a high grade point average to get in there, and I was accepted into their program. And I was, I was drunk. And uh, I, my whole, the last semester of my senior year, um, I was uh, taken drunk around the finals of my senior year in college. And my father was paying for this, and this was his alma mater. He had graduated from Washington University and gone on to medical school there, and had graduated from medical school there and become a surgeon. He was a flight surgeon uh, with the Air Force for years and years and years. And uh, he was very proud of that because he was a little boy from Pacific, Missouri, and he had done good. And he wanted his daughter to go there, and I was the eldest and, at the time, the most interested in going. Um, that week, when I, I, I had gotten a key made to the liquor cabinet, I um, got into a case of port wine, and I had 
they were gone and I drank an entire case of port wine and I didn't take the finals. I uh, began hemorrhaging. I had an esophageal hemorrhage and I was by myself and I got out the Merck manual, looked myself up and I was febrile. I was uh, nearer shocked than I have ever been in my life. I propped my legs up in the air, I put my head down, and I stayed that way, sipping small amounts of milk and water for three days until the, the hemorrhaging stopped. I almost died, all by myself. And so I knew I wasn't going to graduate from college, and yet I put my entire family who came for the graduation through the graduation ceremony. I went back and got somebody else's cap and gown. I sat in the quadrangle at Washington University as though I was going to graduate and my name was not on the program. Afterwards, my father came up to me and he said, we have to talk. I'll never forget that quadrangle with the green grass growing right down to the path and I'm walking along it in a stolen cap and gown. <laughs> and he comes up behind me and puts his hand under my arm and he said, honey, we have to talk. And I wanted to say to him so badly at that time, daddy. I didn't mean to do this to you. I know what this does to you. I didn't mean to do this, but I'm a drunk, and I drink before anything else. I drink no matter what, but I couldn't say that. You know I couldn't say that, so I didn't say anything. There was one, most of the professors allowed me to take something so that I got most of my grades, but there was one professor named Naomi Leibowitz who would not give me a grade. And I resented her, but I have come to believe that she was the greatest angel I've ever had because I didn't graduate. And after I got sober, I went to, to American University in Washington, D.C., and I took the courses necessary for me to graduate. And when I was doing this, I said to my sponsor, this was in the, men, in the middle of my amends, she said, you go to your dad and ask him what you can do uh, to make up for this. And so I went to him and he said, get a degree. Get a degree. And I went back to my sponsor, still the cunning, baffling, and powerful alcoholic, and said, can I ask him for the money? <laughs> and she said, I don't think so. <laughs> And I paid for it, and I got my degree, and I went back to my dad, and I said, I want to thank you. I love you. I am proud of myself because I have accomplished this, but let me tell you that I'm not so wonderful that I wasn't thinking about asking you for the money. <laughs> and he said, I know that, and I would not have given it to you. <laughs> that restored confidence in me for him, through him. And our relationship through the years has improved to the place where I can go over next door and hold this, this little old, powerful old, ratty old man, because he's kind of crabby, you know. You have a right to be crabby at 90. <laughs> hold him in my arms and say, I love you. Please don't ever hesitate to ask me for help. Please. You know, you get resentments going along because there's mood-changing people in meetings. They change my mood overnight sometimes, especially when they're ugly to me. And I was sponsoring a couple of sisters, and their mother was ugly to me because I was taking her place. She was an alcoholic. She was drinking. She was, you know. And... Um, I got resentful. So I went to my sponsor. This was only about 10 years ago. I went to my sponsor and I said, I resent this woman. She said, okay, I'll tell you what. You start sending her a bouquet of flowers every week, anonymously. You write out that check. Don't you dare tell anybody where they're from. <laughs> so I went to the local friendly AA florist. <laughs> you know, we have AA mechanics, AA florists, AA plumbers. Watch out for those guys. <laughs> AA painters, you know. AA mechanics, you know how we are. I went to the AA florist and she started, she cooperated in my secret and I started sending Sally these flowers every week. Well, then she got sick. She got, she's an alcoholic and she got cancer of the throat and by the time she discovered it, it was so large that 
within eight to ten months she was dead. But I just kept sending those flowers. And I just kept writing those checks. And by the time she was moribund, I was free. And she planned her own funeral. She was an artist, as I'm an artist. And she had her paintings up at the front. She'd written her own service. And in the service, she said, I heard this over and over and over again. Forgive me, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. And I was able to be there for those girls. I was able to be there free of that resentment in that church and say, you know what, Sally, I really did love you. You were a great old gal. And this was a beautiful day in Nebraska. There was blue sky, frost on the trees, white rind frost. There had been fog the night before. It had frozen on the branches. And every one of them was outlined against that blue sky. And we walked out of the church. And the first 53 people out of the church were given a balloon, one for every year of her life. And we stood on the bluffs of the Missouri River. And we said a prayer. And we let her go. And I was able to cry and pray and appreciate the woman that had been. That's amends. In closing, I want to talk about an experience that I've just had. One of the people that I sponsored for a very long time uh, recently died. And uh, I knew when she was diagnosed, the chances of her survival were slim because of the kind of cancer that it was. But in the eight months that she lived, I think we grew in a hurry to really appreciate the relationship that we had. We had taken each other so for granted because we thought life would just go on and on. And I took her with me to Don's thing in Colorado three weeks before she died. She was no angel. She was a bitch, really. <laughs> she was an alcoholic with 22 years of sobriety. You know, she was just one of us. She went into the hospital on a Friday night in the middle of the night and Dick and I got up and we went with them and we talked and she was had no hair and she had huge brain tumors all inside her brain and a very big one in her abdomen and it had overwhelmed her and she was sitting in this wheelchair and she turned to me and I saw the angels in her eyes and she smiled and I hugged her and I said don't stay on our account because we'll we'll be okay but you'll be really okay and that was the last coherent time I had with her. The next morning, I left at 3.30 in the morning, and at 7 they called me, and they said, get over here, it's soon. And the nurse did. And I got over there, and we called, and within a half hour, there were 35 people from Alcoholics Anonymous in that room. And they took the other lady out, and they moved her down the hall, and we held her hands 
she was never, ever without someone holding her hand. She was struggling for breath. She kept trying to take it off. They started giving her morphine, and her respirations became shallower and shallower and further and further apart. And at the very last moment, we were all standing. We said the Lord's Prayer. And I had always been ambivalent about heaven. Always. I just thought, you know, better live well today, you know, and stay in the meeting. You know, maybe it's like a really good meeting or something. But I'd always been kind of ambivalent. I didn't know. In that room, you guys gave me the spiritual grace enough that when she died in the moment of her death, there was a sense of rising in that room, which was incredible. That's all I know. There was a rising. She will never die. Because she is in me. And in some of you. And she will live on. I always just wanted to make a difference. Just a difference. And I'll tell you, she made a difference to me. And I think if we can just do that one time in this great fellowship, um, there will be a rising.